You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of From Under the Rubble uh, from the Fleming Foundation. I'm happy to have Dr. Fleming with us, and I'm Stephen Heiner, and today we are discussing the Electoral College. It seems like a lifetime ago the unbelievable happened Dr. Fleming, and the very first thing, or one of the very first things in order to delegitimize the election was to say, down with that old electoral college. Uh, This is inauthentic. He lost the popular vote. And we have had instances in the past in the United States of someone losing the popular vote and winning the presidential election. So, and, and interestingly enough, we also had that episode in which people changed electors, but it actually worked more against Hillary than it worked against Trump. Does, exactly. Does losing the popular vote make his election any less authentic? No, not at all. Uh, this is, after all, the way our, our system operates. It's the system based on law and rule. This is, uh, although if you, you listen to the uh, leftist commentators on television or uh, on the Internet, you'd swear this was what happened was unprecedented. There have been a long string of, uh, of <laughs> somewhat dubious elections. You know, the, uh, the, the, in the, when John Quincy Adams was elected, uh, no one got a majority of the vote, but Andrew Jackson got a, pl- a large plurality. Nobody really uh, uh, wanted uh, John Quincy because he was a a regional candidate and a very unattractive sort of human being. uh, But when it went to the House of Representatives, the the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, stage managed the whole thing uh, so that it was – the election went to John Quincy and, uh, of course, the the Speaker, Henry Clay – got his reward, which was to be made the Secretary of State, which in those days was regarded as the surest path to the presidency. John Randolph denounced it as a corrupt bargain and, of course, fought one of the most famous duels in American history uh, with Henry Clay over that accusation. So there's that one. There's the, the election of 1876, which was a thoroughly corrupt and dishonest election in which uh, the, uh, the, the deal was worked out that, the, that South Carolina would, uh, cert- would have its uh, – could- a former Confederate Wade Hampton would be elected governor uh, on, the, on the sort of the redeemer ticket. They weren't daring quite to call themselves Democrats, and he in turn would certify the Republican candidate for president – as uh, as elected when, in fact, he, lo- he certainly lost the state of South Carolina. So it was, again, a, cor- a, <laughs> a corrupt bargain. But uh, the, what, what South Carolina got out of it, of course, was the end of Reconstruction. The Grover Cleveland uh, it lost, in, in being reelected, lost the uh, – he, he gained the popular vote but lost the electoral vote. And, uh, and of course, George uh, W. Bush, the same thing happened. Uh, with uh, Al Gore, who uh, seems to have won the popular vote. So all of these uh, these cases were resolved through the legitimate methods set up by the Constitution. 
And that that is how the system works. That's the game that's played. On our website, uh, we published a very interesting piece by John Seiler in which he said, look, you, 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 you play whatever game it is by the rules. And both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton played by the rules. That is, they ignored large states that they knew they were going to lose because getting a few extra votes in those states wouldn't wouldn't help. And so Hillary played by the same rules that Trump played by, and she lost. Uh, if Trump had played by the rules of trying to get uh, the popular vote, he probably would have won the popular vote. But that wasn't the game in play. And uh, Seiler adds, he said, it's sort of like uh, you ha- you're playing the World Series, and uh, it's the best It's the, you know, you have to win four games out of seven. But why don't we change the rules and say whoever gets the most runs in the entire World Series? (laughs) You know, it, it, you, that, that actually there have been many World Series that have been won where the winning team had fewer total runs than the losing team. So really, it's, it's, it, it, you, 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 whatever the game that's being played, that is the game that has to be played. And all of this whining, as surely even even left wing Democrats know, is strictly uh, they're strictly trying to get a little bit temporary advantage over the president. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the election of eighteen seventy six. I remember being taught in AP U.S. history that the president's name was correctly pronounced Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, my teacher being somewhat of a Southern partisan, but I, I think what we one of the lessons we learned from that election is that Republicans will do anything to take the presidency because they see that as far more important than any other branch of government. Well, that's certainly true, and that's that's been their strategy uh, since uh, since 1980, at the very least. You know, once once upon a time, there uh, the. Republicans acted on the theory of James Burnham, which, for example, was uh, the president had limited power, that uh, the really uh, policy making, especially foreign policy and war and peace decisions were made by uh, by the Congress. And with the election of Ronald Reagan, they completely abandoned their traditional position and they call for line item vetoes, for example, for the uh, for the executive. They call for, uh, you know, essentially all the things they complained about uh, in Barack Obama. That is ruling by executive fiat. That that that, that is the uh, Republican position on uh, that they have uh, advocated now since since the since uh, the since the 80s, since they won the White House with Ronald Reagan. One of the elections I know that you bring up fairly often is the the Kennedy election and and what happened there. Some of our listeners, I know not too many, but some of our listeners may not know what you're talking about when you're talking about the disputability of that election and how it moved forward. Because some might say Trump's election is no more valid than JFK's election. Well, uh, it is very interesting because the... uh, the election of in the election of 1960, uh, Jack Kennedy was not an especially well-known or popular American political figure. 
He had done relatively nothing in the U.S. Senate, but his father was one of the richest men of the world. And so during the primary campaign, his father in West Virginia, it is the it has been proved and it was known at the time that Joe Kennedy's money actually bought uh, voters in the West Virginia primary and that without without bribery, Kennedy would not even have had the nomination. By the way, this is something of a parallel to the corrupt process by which uh, Hillary Clinton eliminated her chief rival, right. uh, what, Bernie what if Sanders. We, what if WikiLeaks had existed back then is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, it would, have been, it would have been crushing. And secondly, in the election, of course, Joe Kennedy had a lot of good contacts. Once they had neutralized uh, Lyndon Johnson and brought him on the ticket as uh, vice presidential candidate, Johnson was able to deliver uh, uh, the uh, Texas vote, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the claims that Trump is making about voter fraud. Well, this was this was proved at the time, and it's been well known. And <clears throat> George Garrett has a very funny uh, imaginary letter from a Mexican to, uh, American to uh, Lyndon Johnson, saying, "Dear President Johnson, you know my uncle and I and our dead grandfather voted for you multiple times, and the least you could do is you know give us a reward for for all our efforts on your behalf." So um, th- th- this kind of thing went on. In Chicago, there were two forces at work. One was the Richard Daley, the mayor, his political machine, but also the mafia. Because let us never forget that uh, during Prohibition, Joe Kennedy was involved in, in, in very big business with, uh, with organized crime. And he maintained these contacts uh, throughout his life. And uh, some people on the far left know this and have, have resented the Kennedys uh, as a result. And, of course, the mafia resented the fact that uh, Bobby Kennedy decided to showboat when he was attorney general and to go after both the Teamsters and, uh, and their mafia contacts. This was really breach of faith because in places like uh, Miami and New Orleans, the mafia certainly was working very hard to deliver the vote. Richard Nixon knew for certain fact that Kennedy had stolen the election, that it was that that Nixon had been elected. And uh, Republican leaders and people who are uh, close to Nixon, and I know this from a number of uh, sources, personally from a number of sources, uh, they they wanted Nixon actually to contest the election as Al Gore contested the, uh, the election. But the difference is that uh, Nixon was, a, was an actual statesman and a patriot. And he felt that at the, height, at the height of the Cold War, the last thing this uh, country needed was to have doubts about uh, the, the fairness and honesty and integrity of its, uh, of its political process. So Nixon shut up. And, of course, what he learned from this was that the only way to get elected in the United States was through, was through corrupt chicanery. And uh, Nixon became a changed man, I think. And he resolved that what they, whatever they could do, he could outdo them. And in fact, Dick Nixon was a very good, polit- you know, very effective politician. Lyndon Johnson once said, when asked who were the most effective uh, political manipulators in his lifetime, he, Richard Nixon was first on his list because <laughs> Nixon, although a far more honorable man than than LBJ, that uh, Nixon still knew knew the process the way the way Johnson did. 
But all of this, you know, it, it's forgotten. When I travel in Europe, people say, oh, you know, you're wonderful President Kennedy, a true aristocrat. Say, he was shanty Irish. He wasn't an aristocrat. You know, his, his, his father was a rum runner and his maternal grandfather was a political fixer in Boston. They didn't call him Honey Fitz Fitzgerald because he had a sweet temper, but because he knew how to get the honey out of the Boston political process. So we're, de we're dealing with a, a family of scoundrels on both sides and who never learned how to behave any better. They never got better. It's a real, uh, by the way, the argument about the assimilation of minorities, well, it didn't work in the Kennedy's case. They, they never assimilated to the Anglo-American political tradition, which is based on hard work, integrity, honesty. Not, none of that appealed to them. Well, as you say, the idea of contesting the election would would be problematic during the Cold War. Today, it would still be something dramatic as a lot of the world looks to the United States for leadership, for better or for worse. And to see the United States descend into questions about the legitimacy. We saw this with the, the voter hacking. I remember seeing a, uh, a meme that was shared with me on the internet that said, uh, yes, the Russians hacked the election to show that the, the DNC had hacked the election, uh, something along those lines, that all of the flurry of protests that we've seen since the election have, have had this effect of creating this frenzy. Do you think that it has been effective? Because basically we're seeing it in a, a lesser way what you said Nixon was somewhat worried about and wanted to avoid. Yeah. It is certainly, uh, and it's, it's, it, in this case, it is deliberate. Nixon would have been justified on the, on the facts for contesting the election. Hillary Clinton has nothing. To, they have a theory that Putin wanted to see Hillary defeated. If Putin really uh, did uh, have an effect on the election, it was not because of affection for Donald Trump, but a hatred and contempt for the Clintons and Obamas who have so have so loused up foreign policy and so destabilized the, the world. I mean, the world is a much more dangerous, unprofitable place for for big power players and for everybody. I mean, the, the blood that is on the hands of the Clintons and the Obamas for for their foreign policy misadventures, it, it's simply astounding. So if, Trump, if Putin had a motive for doing this, uh, the, a personal motive, it was hatred of Hillary Clinton, not affection for Donald Trump. And second of all, what did he do? He let the truth be known. If this is, if this is, if this is actually how the Russians so-called hacked the election, which is hilarious, hacking the election should mean they got into the vote, they somehow got into the, the computers and they changed the results. But no, no. In this case, hacking the election <laughs> means letting the truth slip out of what a, what a criminal conspiracy the Clinton campaign was, how they, had, how they had the press in their pocket. What Trump will do with this would be very interesting. Is he going to allow Jake Tapper to come in and interview him? All of these people who are identified in these internal memos uh, of the Clinton campaign as prominent, prominent journalists who, who were actually – working for the Clinton campaign. But uh, so the, there's a huge difference between uh, even uh, between uh, this election and even if the worst, even if we believe the worst that is said about it by the by the Clinton staffers and loyalists, uh, 
that it, it is far more legitimate. Kennedy actually stole the election by, I mean, to, they in a primitive way, they hacked the vote all right. I mean, they simply changed the numbers by having in non-voters and dead people vote and having the, the counting controlled by, uh, by uh, po- corrupt political figures and by the mafia. Well, I suppose that the most ardent Kennedy loyalists would make the Chestertonian argument that uh, the democracy of the dead was exercised, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> that'd be a real stretch. So all, all these yeah. quibbles aside, Dr. Fleming, legitimizing, delegitimizing, dead people voting, can we say the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness? Uh, and, and again, I say this as tongue-in-cheek as possible, uh, because of, I suppose, uh, that as any royalist would, uh, it's just an under, it undermines democracy. Yes, well, that's the good thing uh, about the Electoral College. The um, no one at the no one, none of the leaders, with the possible exception of the of the Jacobin Tom Paine, none of the leaders of the American Revolution were uh, viewed democracy favorably. Nobody wanted it. And 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 none of the leaders at the Constitutional Convention or uh, or uh, none of the political leaders at that time, including Jefferson, who was not here, believed in majoritarian democracy. They all believed in one or another form of republic that that would have uh, safeguards to protect it from the uh, evil uh, consequences of majoritarian democracy. The principle of majoritarian democracy is that 51 percent can dictate to 49 percent of the of the people in a country and that that 51 percent, if they have brown eyes, can can, for example, outlaw blue eyes or deprive them of the vote or or put them in concentration camps or kill them. Well, what's what's to stop that? Well, well, you can talk about universal human rights, but, you know, any the point is that any majoritarian democracy can vote to eliminate those rights. Which, of course, is a big problem. Um, So the, the so this is. You need specific safeguards. In the United States, we adopted a number of tried and true uh, methods. Now, it, we made very explicit and very clear what was only sort of implicit in some other systems. But, for example, uh, the division of responsibility among branches of government, uh, legislative, executive, and uh, and uh, and judicial had uh, with 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 you know different functions. We also the power was divided between the states, so that the states were sovereign in all things appertaining to the state, and only surrendered a small portion of that sovereignty to the federal government. There's also, uh, but one of the things that really concerned people at the time, what if large states with large populations like Virginia, New York, Massachusetts, what if those states uh, simply got together and could outvote the smaller states? You see, this was an incredibly diverse uh, country uh, when we uh, of 13 sovereign states, which had been colonies. There were large states, small states. There were agrarian states versus versus uh, commercial or 
uh, industrial states, and all of uh, they all had different interests. Well, how do you make sure these some some group, some coalition of special interests doesn't uh, seize power so that it prevents uh, it can, it can, it can overtax or eliminate or or do or find ways of acting which are prejudicial to the other group. And so in the specific case of the Electoral College, it was uh, and of the U.S. Senate because the two are linked. The idea is that you, as it's sometimes been said, you need to weigh the vote, not merely count the vote. So you have to take into consideration all these different interests. So the House of Representatives was set up to, to be to represent basically majoritarian democracy. The Senate was set up to be to reflect the states only. So the Electoral College being a, a, a kind of mixture of these two things would, would therefore prevent majoritarian democracy and ref, and would reflect uh, reflect the variety and diversity of interests in the country. And so that's how it is supposed to work. If we if this were a uh, if elections were carried out on the principle of one man, one vote and whoever gets the most votes picks up all the marbles, then in this last election, not only would California and New York have determined the outcome, but specifically the counties in which Los Angeles and New York City are located. Mm. They together would have given the vote to Hillary Clinton. Fortunately, with the Electoral College, this urban rabble is not allowed to dictate to the real America uh, what the terms of its existence are. Right. It's bad enough that they get to vote for who the mayor of New York is. Yes, exactly. What what they need is an imposed dictator from the outside. Can you? It, it's it's very amusing now that uh, Hillary. There, there's a lot of talk about Hillary Clinton running for mayor, as if Rick De Blasio isn't the worst mayor the city's ever had. As if he's not absolutely making the city a laughing stock around the world. You know, here's a city with severe financial crisis, crime problem, and he wants to protect the, 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 the horses that carry tourists around Central Park and, 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 and stop this lucrative business. So we're dealing, we're dealing with a criminal lunatic as mayor, but Hillary figures she can make things much worse if, <laughs> if she runs. I, I wish I could make this stuff up. So what would you do instead of eliminating the Electoral College? Well, I would uh, actually beef it up. I think the principle of indirect democracy is uh, is a basic, necessary uh, uh, principle on which all decent governments have functioned. The there's a there's an old saying, you know, that all 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 politics is personal, all politics is local. And uh, Peter Peter Laslett, in uh, in a number of interesting political studies, has tried to argue that all, all politics is really face to face. The trouble in say in Britain is that there are two sets of face to face communities. One are the neighborhoods and rural districts and villages in which normal people live, 
They, they have their face-to-face community, the people you see every day at the, at the grocery store or in church. Then there's the face-to-face community represented by the uh, House of Commons. Now, Laszlo says, and he never bothers, he never tries to prove because it's impossible to prove because it's not true, that somehow Britain has found a way of finding an interface between these two communities. And the fact is, that's not true. The House of Commons votes in its acts in its own interest in the way that a face-to-face village acts in its own interest. A small village community doesn't, doesn't really care what happens to strangers, aliens, Martians, whatever, who come to visit it. They care about taking care of themselves. They want the roads done. They want, they want, uh, they want their stores to, to, to function, maybe at the expense of somebody else's stores. It's intensely, it's, it's intensely local, intensely personal, intensely selfish. But so is the House of Commons. So is the Congress of the United States. Members of these large electoral bodies act in their own interest, not in the interest of the people who represent them. Now, of course, their own interest includes, uh, for example, getting reelected and uh, retaining their salary. So this means they will those people who can most help them get reelected. Uh, various special interest group minority leaders. They, they, w- whatever, whatever is their district is, that they become important and, and nobody else. And secondly, the people who give them large amounts of money. If we were to give a nod to Christianity and classical culture, um, even though this is a from under the rubble episode, what is when we look at democracy? It's it's a set of procedures. But isn't an essentially Christian system that acknowledges the dignity and worth of every human being another way of putting it? That is certainly the way the advocates of uh, Christian democratic parties would put it. The problem with this, and in fact, it's also the problem with all attempts to identify uh, the Christian social moral message with a specific political system, whether monarchy, aristocracy, clerical fascism, democracy, uh, democratic socialism, totalitarian socialism. They all have their their Christian advocates who say, you know, the welfare state is really what Jesus would have done had he, you know, had the capacity when, in fact, we know that that's exactly what uh, that no, no Christian ruler would ever consider for a moment because it takes away the ability to perform charity by, by human persons. So uh, the, if we want, so there's no, there's no one form of government, not even monarchy, Stephen. There's no one form of government which you could say, well, that truly exemplifies uh, Christianity. Uh, there are elements in all these forms that are praiseworthy. And the emphasis on the, the ability of the human person and, his, and within his own community to control his own life and not to be interfered with in his life plans by, uh, by a dictatorial ruler, that is certainly a good thing. And of course, that exists in, in constitutional monarchies as, as well or perhaps much better than it does in, in a mass democracy. If you look at what, you know, that the, the early Christian tradition on this, because later on, 
you know, there'll be there's a lot of uh, Christian absolutism, a lot of Christian monarchism, and some of it quite brilliantly expressed as by Bishop Bossuet in France, or less brilliantly by King uh, James the uh, the sixth and first in uh, Scotland and England. But if we look at the uh, if we look at the Bible. I hate to sound evangelical now. We look at the Bible. There are two forms of government that are prominently discussed in positive terms. One is monarchy, or in this case, the monarchy is the Roman Empire. St. Paul tells us explicitly we have to obey the rulers. They're there to, uh, for the correction of, of uh, wickedness and to, uh, to protect the, the weak and the innocent and the virtuous. And therefore, uh, the, the Roman Empire should be respected and similarly, there are admonitions to this effect in the Old Testament about Old Testament monarchy. However, it's also true that uh, that uh, that the uh, monarchy in Israel was also a punishment for the weakness of its people. And Samuel warns them that they're not going to like it if they do uh, choose, uh, uh, in this case, Saul as a king. The other form of government we see, which in the Bible, which is which is praised and praised under and 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 taken as a model unreservedly is the life of the Jewish tribes, the tribes of the children of Israel uh, as they're coming into the promised land. And this is a very strange group. You have the, 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 the tribal structures and underneath that you have familial structures of kindreds and you have rulers of a hundred families and 10 families and this is a, a very decentralized society. It is what anthropologists would call, sometimes call a segmentary society where, you know, the authority of the ruler of the tribe depends on the ruler of the hundred families and his authority. But, of course, he's chosen by the rulers of ten families who are then chosen by the rulers of their own families. So we have this set of interlocking face-to-face -face communities where power travels from the from the human person or from the, the, the family household all the way up to the tribal ruler. In the case of, the, of uh, the Jews, of course, the problem was they didn't get beyond that and not having a ruler for their whole country, they were easily divided, they were constantly fighting each other and they uh, and they therefore couldn't stand up to their to their enemies and uh, this is why and having to have a mom we have for this 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 kind of system that we have a lot of analogies in the way ancient greek city-states functioned and the way the roman republic and the roman empire function in other words decentralized devolved interlocking face-to-face -face communities where the power travels from the human person all the way up to the ruler with lots of intermediate levels of, of decision-making. That would seem to be the form most consistent with the Christian understanding, and of course it is the form consistent with Aristotle's account of, of, of human political and social evolution that we get in, in the politics, where he says po the, 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 the commonwealth evolves from the married couple to the village community of, of interlocking kindreds, and from that to the the city, which which you know which is a, a, a way in which all human needs can be satisfied. And you see this reflected in Cicero. You see it in Thomas Aquinas, and you finally see it most brilliantly articulated in the German Calvinist uh, Johannes Althaus, otherwise known as Althusius 
who has a theory about the Holy Roman Empire, which is remarkably similar to, say, the constitutional republic set up in the 1770s and 80s here in the United States. And one of the functions, one of the one of all of these, is you have a lot of indirect election. For Althusius, you know, if an emperor dies without a clear heir, what do you do? Well, the electors, significant work, because obviously the uh, the people who who created the electoral college were very well aware of how their Holy Roman Empire operated. Some of them had studied it very carefully, uh, as Madison and Adams had. So the emperor dies. He's picked not by a mass election. He's picked by a, a set of electors, you know, a dozen, two dozen people, uh, uh, a duke here, a bishop there. The, the rulers, the various rulers of these different, uh, these different constituent commonwealths of the emperor. Empire. It's not up to the emperor to say to change the rules. Well, we don't like it, a duke here, or we don't like it, a ruling council here, or we don't like a bishop there. No, no. These 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 constituent, these duchies and 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 uh, and uh, bishoprics, they made their own rules. Well, what if what if what if a what if a duke dies? What if one of the electors dies? And. Uh, there's no there's no clear air something is there's a there's a failure well then the the barons of the realm will get together and choose a new ruler and maybe they'll stipulate his heirs can can rule or not it it's it, it's up to them and if one of those barons dies without a proper uh uh descendant uh, with it out an, an, an acknowledged heir, well, then the knights of the realm will will. So it goes all all the way down to the conjugal pair, which he calls you know sort of the the biological dyad. So for for Althusius, you start with the married couple, and it goes all the way up to the Holy Roman Empire with interlocking face to face communities. If you want a, a really pure, a, a, a brilliant and clear exposition of what a Christian empire or a large country would, would function like, it would function like that. And that is roughly, in a, in a kind of crude American way, that's sort of what we had in 1790. And of course, every attempt to make it more democratic makes it more despotic and more tyrannical. And that's why I say we not only should save the Electoral College, but we need to take the principle of the Electoral College and extend it through as far as we can throughout all aspects of American political life. I, and I think that's very well said, Dr. Fleming. That's a good place for us to end today's episode. Thank you. Uh, so the T-shirts for uh, Repeal the 17th Amendment will be available in the Fleming Foundation store. So if our listeners want to know, there, there's no such T-shirt, but uh, we're not a T-shirt type of foundation. So We could be. <laughs> if, if, there, if there were money in it, we would be. <laughs> now you're talking my kind of language, Dr. Fleming. Uh, I knew it. But, but as always, thanks for taking the time to, to share with us, and we look forward to our official season one of a podcast on the Fleming Foundation, and uh, this was a great way to kick off. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. 
Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.